Shining City Audio, a John Meacham and C-13 original studio. Just like El Paso, Pittsburgh, Charlottesville, Buffalo happened. Thirteen people, ages 20 to 86, were shot. Ten were killed. This monstrous act was committed by someone who believes that white people are under siege. That immigrants and black people aim to replace white Americans in this country. Panic and terror. It is an old paranoia. I'm Dr. Eddie Esclaw, Jr., a professor of African American studies at Princeton University. I've come to believe that we don't really know who we are as Americans. Our myths and legends have blinded us to the reality close to the ground, that we are truly a diverse nation, not a white one. The historical evasion of that fact in policy and in deed has corrupted the soul of this nation. Our demand for innocence and safety has kept us stuck in a kind of national adolescence. We refuse to grow up, and we continue to leave bodies in the wake. The moral crisis we face today has everything to do with who we take ourselves to be as a nation and who we will become on the other side of this terrible storm. The answers to these questions, I believe, require that we grapple with the history that has brought us to now. Moments when we, as Americans, had a chance to be otherwise. To finally settle this issue of race and democracy once and for all. And instead, too many Americans turned their backs on that hope. James Baldwin once wrote, The great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us that history is literally present in all that we do. American history haunts. There is something at once distinct and familiar about our current days. The soil of this nation is soaked with the blood of those who have died because of it. The violent storming of the Capitol, the calls to stop the steal, and the efforts to pass legislation that narrows who can vote. The demands for a pristine history shorn of our national sins. The brutal murder of innocence in a grocery store all seemed so familiar to me. The horror of Buffalo happened against the backdrop of a cold civil war turned hot. Our history haunts. Today, Americans stand at a crossroads, and in so many ways we are still fighting old battles still trapped in categories and assumptions that arrest our imaginations. We have to decide. Will we finally become a genuinely multiracial democracy? History is Us is a six-part audio documentary that turns our attention to the past that haunts us still. It is my prayer and desperate hope that these episodes will help guide us through the storms and help us all Imagine a new America. January 6th was supposed to be a formality. 
It's usually very, very ceremonious. It's nothing really that most of us have been paying attention to in past races, but today all eyes are here on Capitol Hill. The results of the 2020 election had been certified by all 50 states, naming Joe Biden the clear winner. But the sitting president, Donald Trump, refused to accept the results of the election. Between November and January, he made countless false claims of voter fraud. He called the election rigged. He told his base that the presidency had been stolen. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. And on January 6th, a group of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol, forcing all members of Congress to evacuate their chambers until the building could be cleared. Hey, brother, we're boots on the ground here. We're moving on to Capitol now. Hours later, the Senate reconvened to carry out its duty of counting the votes, but Republican Senator Ted Cruz did not see it as a duty. He saw it as a choice, and he invoked the election of 1876 as precedent for his demand. So I endeavored to look for door number three, a third option, and for that I looked to history, to the precedent of the 1876 election, the Hayes-Tilden election where this Congress appointed an electoral commission to examine claims of voter fraud. Five House members, five senators, five Supreme Court justices examined the evidence and rendered a judgment. And what I would urge of this body is that we do the same. Senator Cruz demanded that any official declaration of Joe Biden's victory in the fiercely contested election be halted for 10 days while the government conducted an emergency investigation into alleged election fraud. But Cruz got it wrong. When he invoked the dangerous precedent set by Congress in 1876, he called for a return to an era of incredible graft and to a period that laid the political foundations for unmitigated racial terror throughout the country. Irony abounds. Cruz's haunting invocation of 1876, in a moment in which some Americans had staged what was for all intents and purposes a coup, has grave implications for the future of American democracy. I'm Dr. Eddie S. Glaude, Jr., and this is History Is Us, Chapter 1, The Collapse of Radical Reconstruction. We have a long, long tradition, tragic tradition of violence that attends American politics. Fail implies that there was something wrong with the policy. Reconstruction didn't fail. Reconstruction was killed. You can't study Reconstruction violence and not come away thinking, oh my God, that can't happen again. Since I was a young boy growing up on the coast of Mississippi, history has fascinated me. I've spent a career trying to understand the American experiment, and the challenges of these difficult days have led me to turn to our past once again, to understand our present, and to imagine a better future. Join me in this six-part documentary podcast series to face the ugly truths at the heart of the American story. We'll ask questions about who we are as a nation and what race might reveal about our current crisis. It is my hope that with a clearer sense of our tragic, hopeful, and undoubtedly flawed story, we can start the work to reinvent ourselves. 
to make America anew. Let's begin again. The circumstances surrounding the dirtiest election of the 19th century between Republican Rutherford B. Hayes and Democrat Samuel Tilden were much more complicated and insidious than Cruz implied. That electoral commission in 1876 hastened the death of one of the most promising eras in American politics, a moment when the country genuinely tried to build a multiracial democracy. So to understand our present moment and the current assault on our democracy and voting rights, we must look back and begin with the Reconstruction era. Reconstruction was one of our earliest moments in which we see how the institutions of democracy can turn their back on that project. And that at the level of our everyday lives, the safeguarders of democracy in our communities can become the agents of violence, of suppression, of white supremacy. And that is the story of Reconstruction's demise. And it is why I wait to see how our institutions respond in our own time to this turn. This is historian Martha Jones. She's a professor of history at the Johns Hopkins University and focuses on how Black Americans have shaped the history of American democracy. The Reconstruction era began after the Civil War. The U.S. government attempted to transition four million newly emancipated African Americans into American political life. This 12-year period of American history was a remarkable and incredibly vexed endeavor marked by immense political and social transformation. Some have called it one of the most important achievements in American democracy. If Reconstruction was an extraordinary opportunity for this nation to embrace, to work toward, to commit to a true interracial democracy. What we learn is that Congress can lose its interest and lose its will, that a Supreme Court can turn and twist and pervert the words of the Constitution, the meaning of the Constitution, to render it anti-democratic. A host of questions swirl through U.S. society in the aftermath of the Civil War. Chief among them was the question of who exactly would be considered a citizen. What rights did citizenship status afford? And what protections were citizens entitled to? That is the question on everyone's mind. What is the future of this democracy? How do we live it? How do we feel it? How do we own it? And as a result, we can't help but understand that there is a tragic turning away from the problem of violence, a tragic neglect of the extraordinary degree to which the fates of Black political possibility, Black political power, that fate is going to be distorted by the unwillingness of the nation to confront how violence has always been a part of American political culture, has always distorted American political culture. Over the course of the next decade, the United States would grapple with major questions at the heart of its founding. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery. The 14th Amendment established birthright citizenship. It also guaranteed all citizens due process 
and equal protection under the law. It stipulated punitive measures for states that deprived African-American men of the vote. Ex-Confederates were barred from holding state or national office. Republicans, in essence, offered the defeated South a choice, accept black citizenship or lose congressional representation. And white Southerners were not accepting of this choice, and they responded violently. The violence that greets Black Americans in the wake of slavery's abolition is a reminder that violence has always been a facet, a thread in American political culture. In that same pre-war era, political clubs and parties in American cities who bring out the shotguns on election day as a way of welcoming some people to the polls, white men, and keeping others away. The fiercely contested 15th Amendment would shake the nation. And it is here where our particular story begins. Passed in February of 1870, the last of the Reconstruction Amendments stated that no U.S. citizen should be denied the right to vote on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Almost five years after Abraham Lincoln's prescient declaration from the White House that so incensed John Wilkes Booth, Black men were given the franchise. We have a long, long tradition, tragic tradition of violence that attends American politics. And we see that surge immediately in the face of the prospect that not only will Black Americans now be free people, but they are freed people who are now going to clamor for citizenship, for political rights, for full belonging, for membership in a newly made interracial democracy. Reconstruction is a crossroads for the story of America and political violence because it is a moment of heightened awareness. The nation is tuned in to the nature, the character, the contours, the texture of political culture. The implications were many. Reconstruction Southern states swung Republican thanks to the newly enfranchised Black male voters. Over 600 African Americans served as legislators. Schools and other relief projects cropped up throughout the Southern states. Reconstruction was indeed well underway, and the possibility of a genuinely multiracial democracy was in full view. But it wasn't long before violence erupted. The nation was on the cusp of debilitating economic depression. Some Democrats, now calling themselves redeemers, were regaining control of Southern legislatures, claiming to save the South from corruption and misrule by, quote, incompetent and corrupt, unquote, African-Americans. Racial terror from the newly formed Ku Klux Klan proliferated and white vigilantes openly assaulted and lynched black people in broad daylight with no fear of being held to account. Violent intimidation tactics proved effective, and by 1874, Democrats regained control of the House of Representatives. The stakes of the upcoming elections at both the state and national levels were high. The future of the Republic hung in the balance. In this moment, no one can say that they were unaware that this somehow happened off the main stage 
that they didn't perceive what was happening. No, this is the main stage of American politics and too much of it is being driven by violence and the threat of violence. It's important for me to always include the term intimidation because violence does not have to be wrought in every city, in every village, in every hamlet, at every polling place for violence to have its desired effect, which is the suppression of votes, the cowing of folks into staying home on election day. So it's that violence and intimidation that are really the weapons against that experiment in interracial democracy that was Reconstruction. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. The presidential election of 1876 was a critical impasse for American democracy. It marked the end of a period when the federal government assumed real responsibility for protecting the rights of all citizens. The devastating consequences of the government turning its back on its responsibilities to the formerly enslaved would define an era of violence and racial terror. African Americans would struggle to realize the meaning of freedom in a political and social landscape that relegated them to the status of second-class citizens and subjected them to unimaginable violence. When I talk about Reconstruction, I don't like to use the term fail. A lot of historians talk about why did Reconstruction fail? Fail implies that there was something wrong with the policy. You know, like Prohibition failed because Americans wanted to have a drink. Reconstruction didn't fail. Reconstruction was killed. This is historian Douglas Egerton. He's a professor at Lemoyne College and author of numerous award-winning books. Professor Egerton argues that Reconstruction was killed by the deliberate actions of legislators, by powerful former slaveholders and ordinary folk who contributed to its untimely demise. Reconstruction didn't just collapse on its own. We must understand that the campaign to stamp out the triumphs of Reconstruction was hardly coincidental. It was violently overturned. And certainly what you're seeing now, people attacking the Capitol building, attacks on voting rights in a majority of American states, that's the kind of thing you saw then. In 1876, when candidates Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden's bid for the presidency resulted in a stalemate, Congress appointed a 15-person electoral commission to put disputes to rest. It was made up of senators, representatives, and Supreme Court justices. Republicans narrowly held a majority of the Democrats on the commission, eight to seven. Although Tilden won more electoral votes than Hayes, the commission manipulated the inconclusive election results from four states to declare Rutherford B. Hayes the next president of the United States. Their deliberations required much negotiation. The Democratic and Republican Party struck a deal, and obviously, this was not an example of democracy at work. In the 1876 election, you had Samuel Tilden, who was the Democrat, actually win the popular vote. 
But you had states like Florida that had trouble counting their ballots. I know, shocking, absolutely shocking. This is Carol Anderson. She's the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African-American Studies at Emory University and author of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. And so what that did is that they couldn't figure out the electoral college vote. And so it then sent the dispensation of this election into the House of Representatives, where you then had the handlers for Rutherford B. Hayes, who was the Republican, cutting deals with the southern states, saying, throw your electoral college votes our way, and we will ensure that we will remove the small remaining number of federal troops from the South. And basically, you can do to the Black folk what you will do to the Black folk. The fact that the election simply did not go to the Republicans obviously meant the Black vote had been diminished in the South. And so Hayes did what a lot of politicians then or now would do. He made a deal. He offered to withdraw the last remaining soldiers from the South. That said, what the White South wanted in terms of withdrawing the army was more of a symbolic gesture on Hayes's part than an actual meaningful gesture. They wanted the incoming president to say to Black Southerners who voted Republican uniformly that they were on their own. And so in many ways, what really hurt Reconstruction was the drawdown of soldiers from the South, many of whom were African-Americans. Professors Anderson and Egerton just summarized what is known as the Hayes-Tilden Compromise. This is it. This is what Senator Cruz invoked after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Historians cite the compromise as one of the most impactful behind-the-scenes negotiations in United States history. President-elect Rutherford B. Hayes' camp agreed to honor Democratic control of the South. His administration turned its back on any attempt to further reconstruct the region. They looked away as racial segregation and Black voter disenfranchisement expanded, and they closed their eyes to death left in its wake. Democrats, for their part, would honor the transfer of presidential power and begin a decades-long campaign to limit the expansion of civil rights in the aftermath of the Civil War. They would develop new and innovative ways for ensuring Black people would remain second-class citizens in the so-called New South. By this time, retaliation and white backlash were part and parcel of the political landscape of the 19th century. For many Southern whites, the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which overthrew the Black Codes, which restricted Black people's right to own property and to move freely in public space. They saw this as an encroachment on their personal liberties. So to a very large extent, what white vigilantes and sort of the bad actors in the South did was to wear Northern whites down. And and it wasn't very hard to do. If you don't really believe in political equality, social equality, and you're just tired of these endless fights with white Southerners, the war is going on and on. I mean, think of Reconstruction Era simply as a continuation of the Civil War using different means. In cities across the South, the dramatic changes in the demographic, economic, and social life of communities became a source of tremendous friction. Public space and politics were charged with racial meaning. In the end, the tensions around newfound Black enfranchisement, the visibility of Black folk in public space, and their mobility would come to a head. These quote unquote Negroes had forgotten their place. The violence that was raining down on Black folk 
It was a violence about the anger that black folks had the audacity to be free. Anger that black folks were no longer enslaved. You had bands of these white domestic terrorists who were just attacking black folk, slaughtering them. You have these mass episodes of violence, like what happened in Memphis in 1866 and in New Orleans. And it was because black folks had the audacity to vote. And in that audacity to vote, that audacity to believe that they were human beings, that they were citizens, led to the kind of incredible violence. It was how do we wipe these folks off the face of the earth? Here, Professor Anderson is talking about the May 1866 Memphis riots that erupted as white citizens of Memphis refused to embrace the full citizenship rights of black folk in the city. Violence enveloped Memphis for two days. White mobs, especially the all-white police force, brutally massacred African Americans throughout the city. Black women experienced gruesome sexual violence. White men mutilated black bodies and dumped them in the streets. And more than a dozen black churches and schools were burned to the ground. Memphis was just one example. White vigilantes in cities across the South violated, defended, and reasserted white supremacy throughout the region. During Reconstruction, there was an election in Louisiana. And in Colfax, Louisiana, Black folks had voted. They had voted for the Republicans. Well, the Klan, the white supremacists, were absolutely infuriated that their candidates did not win this election. So they decided to attack the bastion of democracy in Colfax, Louisiana, which was the courthouse. The black militia came out to defend democracy. The black militia was slaughtered. And there was no doggone way that Louisiana was going to charge these white supremacists with murder. So the feds stepped in and charged them with violating the force acts, which banned white domestic terrorism. That case went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court wrote that the FORCE Act did not apply to private violence. It only applied to state violence. And since the Klan was a private organization, there was just nothing that could be done. So you get the Supreme Court basically allowing the green light for white private violence domestic terrorism to rain down on black communities, knowing that these states will not step in and do the work of accountability of consequences for murdering black folk. So this sets the stage for the violence that we see during Jim Crow, where, and it was about how do we put black folks back in their place? All of this may sound familiar. Persistent calls to take back the country and make America great again have become common refrains in news media and online forums. And those calls are hardly empty threats. As we saw with the 2020 election, hyper-partisanship and identity-based allegiance, the fear of the so-called great replacement, for example, remain major catalysts for political violence. It led throngs of people to storm the U.S. Capitol in defense of former President Donald Trump in the wake of his electoral defeat. 
wielding weapons and Confederate flags as they scaled the Capitol building and stormed the Senate chambers. Enraged voters shouting, stop the steal, attempted to reclaim an America they felt and feel is under siege. The images sent shockwaves across the globe. Alongside the violence were reports of blatant voter suppression. We're going to have everything. We're going to have sheriffs, and we're going to have law enforcement, and we're going to have, hopefully, U.S. attorneys. Lines at polling stations extended as far as the eye could see. Stricter voter ID laws were enforced in states like North Carolina and Texas. State governments erected barriers to mail-in voting. And in some states, police officers were stationed in and around voting areas like never before. Washington Post in an editorial this morning writes this, quote, Like termites, destructive but largely unseen, anti-democracy forces around the country are gnawing at the foundations of America's free and fair elections. It's bad enough that most Republicans continue to defend Trump's slander on American democracy and use it as a pretext to suppress the vote instead of looking for ways to appeal to more voters. It's even scarier that they're trying to write themselves an insurance policy so that if their vote suppression strategy fails in 2024, they can nonetheless reclaim power. And so you see these things about this kind of, we've got to work on our election integrity. That was the same language that Mississippi used in 1890. Our electoral system is corrupted. We've got to remove this corruption from our election system. That kind of thing about voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud. Mark Twain apocryphally said, history may not repeat itself, but it sure do rhyme. And after the 2020 election, we were hearing the rhymes. I have heard from people like I've never heard before over the last month about this election. They have major, major concerns about the integrity. Recent polling shows that 39% of Americans believe the election that just occurred, quote, was rigged. We were hearing election integrity, voter fraud, voter fraud. How do we shore up these systems? And this is despite the fact that all of the audits and all of the checks were not able to uncover this massive rampant voter fraud because it wasn't there. But if you can conjure up the image, the narrative that you've got these black folks stealing the election from good, honest, hardworking white people, boom. And after January 6th, we witnessed a spate of voting laws passed across the country aimed at what feels like, at least to me, the latest version of voter nullification. Is the political violence we witnessed on January 6th the first of its kind in our nation's history? By the 1870s, political terror and violence around elections was used extensively to defeat those successes of Reconstruction and of Black politics on the ground. And most Americans still, I don't think, have really a good sense historically of the scale of that kind of political violence. David Blight is the Sterling Professor of American History and Director of the Gilda Lehman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance and Abolition at Yale University. He is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of 16 books and one of the world's foremost experts on the U.S. Civil War and Reconstruction. He describes how white Southerners attempted to suppress black and white Republican votes in the wake of the Civil War. 
there's a vacuum in Southern society and politics in the wake of the Civil War. There's just no question about that. Almost all of the four million freed slaves are staying in the South. Where are they going to go? What kind of new labor system will replace slavery is up for grabs. In the first elections, the first significant elections are 1866 and then especially 1868, violence becomes a normative part of it. One of the myths about Reconstruction is that somehow Northern armies stayed all over the South. They did not. There was an occupation of the South, but it was not very extensive. And hence, in this kind of a vacuum, the Ku Klux Klan rises and many imitators of the Ku Klux Klan and their principal aim from day one in 1866, and especially in election years, was always political, to keep black folks and white Republicans from voting. The principal purpose of the Ku Klux Klan was not just to murder black people, they did plenty of that, but it was to intimidate black people, to keep in their place in the economy, and to prevent blacks and whites from voting Republican in local elections, state elections, and the national election. We have this all over our past. As the United States barreled toward the 20th century, freedom's non-arrival with Reconstruction reconfigured life for African Americans. Although some black legislators continued to serve in government, many facets of public life for African-Americans changed after 1877. And let me be clear, for African-Americans, pursuing education, resisting economic exploitation, and exercising the right to vote became matters of life or death. Racial terror and violence were as American as apple pie. And it was all made possible by the willful political abandonment of the Hayes-Tilden Compromise. Black men faced barriers to vote like never before, and white supremacy flourished. How bad were the threats to black people who dared to exercise their right to vote? A formerly enslaved congressman from South Carolina named Robert Smalls can help us answer that question. Professor Egerton recounts his devastating 1895 speech. In 1895, South Carolina was revising its constitution and trying to eliminate the black vote. And Robert Smalls, Smalls was a former slave turned South Carolina assemblyman turned congressman. And Smalls was there at the convention, arguing, of course, against the elimination of black votes. And he had dad. He was talking about how much taxes blacks pay. And then he said, since since the end of the war, 53,000 black activists have been targeted and eliminated and assassinated in the American South. That's 30 years. So one way to break that down, that is 1,766 Black activist poll workers every year. That's five each day in the 11 Confederate states. And so while the big stories, Memphis makes the national news, Colfax makes the national news. What's really happening here is that white vigilantes, Southern Democrats, are very wisely going after individual Blacks in, in rural areas. To vote in the 19th century, you don't go into a modern voting booth and there's not a ballot. You have to get a ticket. Ticket looks like a big bookmark. And you have to get a ticket from a party activist. White vigilantes understand that if you go after today's poll worker and you kill him, you eliminate him, you're going after tomorrow's state assemblyman, you're going after the next year's U.S. congressman, you're going after finally a senator, 
You stop democracy at the lowest level, and basically nobody notices. If you're a young black poll worker and you're killed, who's going to volunteer to take your place? Contrary to popular misconception, violence against blacks in Reconstruction was never random. This was targeted violence, this was targeted assassinations. And so that's how Reconstruction is killed. Right. It's killed at that level. Literally. Yes. In many ways, today, the United States is confronting its ugly past. And you know, we have never been really good at doing that. American history haunts the cries of those storming the Capitol, the calls to stop the steal, and the efforts to pass legislation that narrows who can vote, the demands for a pristine history shorn of our national sins all seem familiar to me, and I hope by now to you. William Faulkner's words from A Requiem for a Nun come to mind. Quote, the past is never dead. It's not even past. In the aftermath of the carnage of the Civil War, the nation struggled to give shape to a country drenched in blood. But it did not settle the question of the role and place of the formerly enslaved. Confronting that fact today may very well help us chart a different future for this fragile experiment. Today, politicians and courts are waging redistricting battles all over the country. In Alabama, for example, a February 2022 ruling from the Supreme Court reinstated an Alabama congressional map that a lower court decided weakened the power of black voters. Last month, a lower court ruled the state's new congressional map most likely violated the Voting Rights Act and ordered officials to draw a new one. But a Supreme Court decision put that call on hold, allowing state officials to use the map they proposed. For more, let's bring in... The map in question combines Montgomery, Birmingham, and Selma, areas with the highest concentration of black voters in the states, into one district. The implications of the redistricting scheme are obvious, at least to me they are. This decision could foreshadow a massive rollback of the Voting Rights Act. Landmark legislation signed by President Johnson in 1965, which provides protections against racial discrimination in voting. Millions of Americans are denied the right to vote because of their color. This law will ensure them the right to vote. The court has already jettisoned Section 5 of the Act, requiring federal approval of changes to state and local voting laws in areas with histories of racial discrimination. It has also narrowed Section 2 of the Act, limiting how minority groups can challenge voting restrictions. This new threat to the Voting Rights Act signals a frightening trend and a critical turning point for our democracy. Our history haunts still. It's a reminder that, in fact, we can't take these giant steps backward. And if we allow these new voting laws to go into place, if the Supreme Court does nothing, we could be in for another 50-year period in which we really move backward when it comes to basic small-D democracy. My greatest worry right now is we have failing institutions. We have a declining trust in institutions a coup d'etat against a legitimate election. That's how close they became. So in that sense, it's worth examining what happened in 76, 77, not for Ted Cruz's purposes, 
all these echoes of Proud Boys and what's the other one, Oath Keepers and all these crowds today, they have their equivalents during Reconstruction too. I wonder if these guys know any of that history. Probably not, but they don't need to. Because what it's about is trying to use vigilante violence to affect politics, voting, and therefore political power. It is that thing where if you can get away with it once, ooh, all it does is embolden you to do it again and larger. White supremacy cannot be sated. It cannot be satisfied. It wants more. If we don't see the roots and the legacies of white supremacy and white supremacy that goes unaccountable for the violence that it does, for the damage that it does to American citizens and to American democracy, if we treat this as this isolated incident, then we treat it like an isolated incident. And we don't understand that part of what fuels this thing is the lack of consequences. We're seeing all of this happening right now. There must be consequences for this. Like so many of the challenges to our democracy today, the lack of consequences that Professor Anderson mentions have historical precedent. Just for a moment, think with me about the history of Odesta Island, South Carolina. In the fall of 1865, just after the Civil War, President Andrew Johnson signed an amnesty proclamation restoring plantation land to former Confederates in the wake of their defeat in the Civil War. This declaration of amnesty overrode promises to grant the ex-slaves of Odesta Island, South Carolina, the right to purchase the land of their ancestors. Instead, the land they'd worked for centuries would be granted to their former masters. Here, Black South Carolinians faced more betrayal. Surely this wasn't what they had in mind when they imagined freedom from bondage. Johnson's amnesty proclamation and the long string of pardons for Confederates he issued welcomed treasonous insurrectionists back into the good graces of the government. In receiving land titles, former Confederates got off scot-free. There were no consequences. In a letter to President Johnson, a committee of freedmen from Odesta Island asked, quote, Are not our rights as a free people and good citizens of these United States to be considered? before the rights of those who were found in rebellion against this good and just government? We have not been treacherous, they exclaimed. The Confederates had. President Johnson did not reply. What Major General Oliver Otis Howard of the Union Army did, he told the ex-slaves that, quote, the duty of forgiveness is plain and simple, and suggested they write to Congress for sympathy. Can you imagine? At that time, the lack of access to the ballot left the formerly enslaved vulnerable to the whims of their former enslavers. They would see no justice in the matter. These moments in our history reveal cracks in the foundation of our democracy. They show us that we have never been an example of democracy achieved or that we are the redeemer nation. Ours is a deeply flawed experiment. But confronting the past affords us an opportunity to imagine ourselves differently, to take the measure of the country and dare to be otherwise. All is not lost. Momentous political season in front of us. Those who stoke the fires of hatred and resentment 
who cashed in politically on panic and fear, will seek to exploit that fear and hatred once again. Our democracy is on the ballot in the upcoming midterms. Who we are is on the ballot too. Will we reject the new redeemers? Or will we usher in another dark period of American history? Nobody knows for certain what the future has in store. But in keeping with the wisdom of William Faulkner and Mark Twain, we can look at the past for clues. With any luck, the next chapter of this story and the rest of this six-part series may help us understand the stakes of the choices we face today. Coming up this season on History Is Us. What happens with this one is it becomes very clear when this wall gets built that it is not doing anything else. It is just there to divide the white neighborhood from the black neighborhood. I'm hopeful. I think there's the potential for a new civil rights movement. And I may not see it in my lifetime, but I hope we'll see it in yours. One of the biggest tragedies of our recent politics is the way that the Supreme Court has undercut enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. The whole promise of Barack Obama was that he's going to make us feel optimistic about race. Periods of racial progress are oftentimes really almost like clockwork, followed by periods of great racist reaction. I think what even led up to January 6th, we're in a narrative war. This isn't just about a political war. It is around who holds the narrative. History Is Us is a creation and presentation of Shining City Audio, a C-13 Originals and John Meacham studio. It is executive produced by Chris Corcoran and John Meacham, narrated by me, Dr. Eddie S. Glaw Jr., and written by Shelby Sinclair and me. Directed by Paige Heinsohn. Production assistance by Terrence Malingard. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Andy Jaskowitz. Production and creative support by Lloyd Lockridge, Chris Basil, David Weisbord, Nikki Kovic, and Ian Mutt. Artwork is by Kurt Courtney. Marketing and publicity by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schiff. C-13 Original Sales and Partnership Strategy, led by Lizzie Roberti, along with Danny Cutrick for Sales Operations. Research by Shelby Sinclair, and additional assistance from Dion Worthy and Elio Leo. Thank you for listening to Chapter 1 of History Is Us, a creation and presentation of Shining City Audio, a C-13 Originals and John Meacham Studio. If you are enjoying this podcast, please rate, review, and follow it on your favorite listening platform so others can find and enjoy it as well. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. 
and why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.